0: Hello and welcome to Mashley at the Movies. I'm Ashley. And I'm Matt. And joining us today is our friend Will McKinley. Hi, Will.
1: Hey, Matt and Ashley. Thanks for having me on again.
0: Thank you for joining us. And it's Christmas Eve. So we're going to talk about a movie called Christmas Eve. This is uh, our penultimate episode in our 12 days of Christmas, where we've been talking about holiday movies leading up to Christmas. Matt, tell us about this movie.
2: Yep, so this came out in 1947. It is, uh, ostensibly, it's about a, a rich old woman, um, Matilda, and <laughs> she has a nephew who is wanting to control her money because he thinks she's not spending it wisely. Um, kind of have to agree with him. But <laughs> anyway, she. Is, so he's wanting to take control of her money and it turns out that she has three sons. Um, they're all adopted. They they make a big point about that, but they she adopted three kids when and, and raised them and but like they went out into the world and don't haven't been back for a while. They're I don't know if they you'd go as far as to call them estranged, but they anyway, for whatever reason, they they are not in contact with her. But she wants to get them back because she wants them one of them to be in charge of her affairs. If someone has to take over her affairs, she wants it to be one of them. So then the story kind of turns into this almost like an anthology where, and it's sequential. It's not all going on at the same time, but it's basically then we meet, then we kind of follow things with the first son. And then that story comes to an end. And then we follow things with the second son. And then they kind of, kind of in that and then it goes on to the third son and then in the end is all when everything kind of comes together Uh, so it's an interesting um, film I'm not sure if I like it or not but anyway Will I'll hand it over to you to see what you think
1: (laughs) I'm not sure if I like it or not it's not exactly a ringing endorsement Um, so you know when Matt suggested this movie I honestly not only had I never seen it Um, I had never even heard of it (laughs) and, um, I have watched it, um, now I've had, I had COVID for like a couple weeks, so I had a fair amount of free time on my hands. So (laughs) I watched this movie a lot, like a number of times. Hmm. And, um, if I was being kind, (laughs) um, I would call it Capra-esque, um, because it has this sort of mix of whimsy and pathos that reminds me of Capra in general, but specifically of of a movie called Mr. Deeds Goes to Town, um, where the quirky lead character also fights bad guys who are trying to take away his money. But, you know, this, but Christmas Eve just completely lacks the, the artistry of Capra in in general (laughs) and, and of this, you know, uh, of Mr. Deeds and any other film in particular that Capra made. um, It really, I think it really was mostly an effort by the, by the producer, who's a guy named uh, Benedict Bajos to basically package a bunch of movie stars that he had relationships with, you know, together in a film where, all their names would look good on the poster. It, <laughs> it, the stories are completely unrelated. Um, they are completely tonally inconsistent from each other. Um, like you feel like you maybe walked out of the theater to get popcorn and came <laughs> back in in a different movie. And it's like, who are these people in this movie? <laughs> and it's syncopated like every 20 minutes it's like a different movie and it's absolutely bizarre because each of them are generally fine you know the first one is a story about like uh, uh, a you know a guy who uh, a sort of playboy who finds you know love with a good woman and that's George Brent is the playboy John Blondell is you know the sort of down-to-earth good woman. The second story is really about, um, you know, a, a, a gangster who's fighting Nazis in South America. Where did that come from? I have no idea. And then the third one is about a rodeo cowboy who busts a like baby ring, and it's like you know, it's like they threw a darts at a dartboard of like stories, stories, and just thing. And I was, like, researching this movie, and I was like, who the hell came up with this absolutely bizarro premise? And you'll never guess who it is. Robert Altman.
2: Hmm. Interesting. Hmm.
1: I had no clue, but apparently this was the first treatment that Robert Altman ever sold. He sold it to the producer, Benedict Bajos, And I don't know how much of his original concept is in the film, but this is Altman. And then once you realize that certain things begin to make sense, like the sort of multiple stories and the, you know, feeling of almost like different characters operating on different planes. And Matt, you said anthology, which is a great way to describe it. So, you know, I don't know, when I when I saw Altman, I was like, oh, okay, well, maybe there's something going on here that, you know, is worth, I don't know, reconsideration. I'm not saying it's a good movie, <laughs> but it's an interesting failure.
0: Hmm. Well, that's very interesting to learn the Altman connection. Um, I have to admit, I really struggled <laughs> to engage with this movie. Um <laughs> It's an interesting kind of framework, you know, Matt, as you described it, you know, the three sons and learning about each son and, and each kind of segment that details each son kind of being a different genre. And I mean, that's kind of an interesting idea. Um, but for me, I mean, each, each of those different stories was just deadly dull. <laughs> um, I... Uh, I just, but how do
1: you really feel, Ashley?
0: Yeah, I'm, I'm telling you. Um, I guess I, I prefer. I liked the last story, the the rodeo cowboy and the and the uh, baby adoption racket that he gets in, unwittingly involved in. I have trouble following that though. But well, it was confusing, but it was so absurd that it it actually made me laugh a few times. And I love the way he keeps referring to the babies and in, in like terms of cattle and stuff. Um, So, I mean, that got a few laughs out of me. Um, But everything else was just bad. And Aunt Matilda is played by Anne Harding, and she's much younger than the role she's playing here. And I don't know, it was very distracting, because they have, like, the old age makeup on her. I mean, it looks like kind of an amateur theater production, where someone is playing an older woman, and you know, walking with the cane and has the tremble in her voice. And I don't know, it just wasn't very convincing.
1: It's so interesting because, you know, we talked on a previous episode, we talked about Holiday. Remember, you guys, we talked about Holiday. And she was, Anne Harding was an Oscar nominee for the original version of Holiday. And as you pointed out, Ashley, she's only 45 years old in this movie. So why on God's green earth, they decided (laughs) to make her play a seven-year-old woman. I have no idea. When I saw her in the makeup, I was like, ah, I know what's going to happen. There's going to be a flashback later on where she's young Mm -hmm. as her current, as her real life age, right? And then we have to accept this dopey, you know, cheese ball makeup, (laughs) but we never see her young. So it's just like, hey, we're going to cast a 45-year-old woman to act like a 70-year-old woman. Um, And no, it doesn't work at all. Oddly, she's also in – it happened on Fifth Avenue, which is a movie, by the way, that is genuinely Mm Capra-esque. You guys talked about Mm -hmm. it on the show. Mm -hmm. Um, It's a great film, and she plays her own age in that movie, and she's fabulous in it. so why she's even in this, I have no clue. Um, the other guys were in it because they had relationships with the producer, with the, with the exception of George Brent as the playboy. Both Randolph Scott and George Raft had worked with the producer on a number of films and with the director, Edwin L. Marin. So I understand why they're in it. Uh, I mean, your mileage will vary on these actors. I happen to think Randolph Scott, who stars in the last uh vignette the last story is one of the most charming and handsome leading men in classic film i think he's fabulous and he could sell you know ice to the eskimos um george ratham a little bit more uh leery of i don't find him a particularly charming actor although i did find that nazi story even though it's completely out of left field for me, it was the most interesting of the stories. Um, the least for me was the first one, even though I adore Joan Blondell. And this is the same year that she made her best movie nightmare alley, another one we've talked about Mm -hmm. on the show. Um, but that first story is like, it's, I don't even know what the point of it is. Nothing really happens. And yes, he eventually proposes to her. So you could call it a redemption story, but, it's so like, you know, at the end and kind of thrown in that it's not part of his narrative. You know, it's not part of the narrative of his core story. So, so yeah, it's a very
2: strange film. So this it's like mismatched socks. Yeah. <laughs> this movie reminded me of all things of uh, Perry Mason, <laughs> the, the Raymond Burr look, Perry I Mason. Always, show.
1: I've been listening. I've been binge listening to this show, by the way. And, uh-huh. I love how you can always pull out a Murder, She Wrote or a Perry Mason (laughs) for everybody. It's like, you know, the guy that he went to high school with, (laughs) Perry Mason.
2: So what I mean by that is, so, you know, I I love, overall, I really love the old Perry Mason TV show. And when that show was good, and and here's the problem. So that show did like 40 episodes a season. So, I mean, there were going to be some miscues and stuff in there. But when the show was good, it was firing on all cylinders. It was just, you know, the episodes had energy and, and vibrancy, and uh, everyone was ringing their A-game, and the story was engaging, and and yeah, it was on. Mm-hmm. And then sometimes they'd have an episode where, I don't know, everyone felt like they'd taken some no <laughs> The story wasn't really all that engaging, or they weren't doing it in a way that made it engaging, and it was a bit of a slog. And that's how I thought about this movie. <laughs> I was like, I felt like everyone was just kind of, except for like Randolph Scott, I thought everyone was kind of sleepwalking through it. And it was, it lacked, and maybe it's kind of, I'm I'm not as artfully saying what Will was maybe getting at earlier, but it's, it lacks that something, that specialness, that maybe that Capra esque nature. It's just, um, it's just kind of there. And I wanna issue you an apology. So, this is a movie that I first heard about last Christmas. We didn't watch it. But we were, it when last Christmas, we were going through streaming stuff and looking for something Christmassy to watch. And this came up and I, and I put it on the watch list because it read to me as kind of a, I thought it was going to be like a crime caper, almost film law, Christmas Eve well, type of thing. That's how it's
1: marketed, by the way. Yeah.
2: And in fact, when, at least we, we watched this off of Amazon Prime, like when you go and find it there, the still image, it's from the middle story. It's the, the second son who's the gangster. And it's a mm-hmm. picture of him, you know, and is looking, is basically, if anyone, if you go to, <laughs> go to Twitter or X right now, look up Will McKinley <laughs> and he's got this very film noir look. That is the same type of image that they use yep. for this movie and streaming. And so again, I'm like, Oh, this going to be kind of a film noir crime creep, film noir crime creeper. It is not. Um, and so I was, But here's the thing, when we do this show, um, this this podcast, obviously, you know, when we talk about a new movie, it's a new experience for us, and, you know, it's part of the the thing I like, is finding, you know, watching new films. But even when we talk about older movies, sometimes we talk about ones we've seen, but other times, I actually kind of look forward to talking about a film we haven't seen, because I'm like, well, that's, you know, I find that interesting, Um, and it's a crapshoot. And sometimes it turns out to be, you know, uh, gold dust. Sometimes it turns out to be Christmas Eve.
1: Well, you know, and you, I'm, when you said to me, you want to talk about this? And I was like, I've never even seen it. You know, my first response was no. And then my second response was sure, because number one, it's like it's fun to not do the You know, it's a lifelong favorite that I watched when I was a little boy. (laughs) Um, But, you know, also, if you if you really are obsessed with old movies like I am, um, you can always find something interesting, even in the worst film, even if it just becomes about like spotting character actors that you recognize from other movies. And this is something I do with old TV shows, whether it's, you know, Perry Mason or Murder, She Wrote or anything. If the story's boring, then you just focus on other things. So, you know, like I like Clarence Cole who plays the judge and Douglas Dumbrell who plays the <laughs> doctor who sells the babies and, you know, <laughs> Reginald Denny who plays Philip, the evil nephew. And so there's always... Things that you can sort of find to kind of, you know, entertain yourself. Um, and I was able to find those in, in this film. So, you know, I'm not sorry I watched it. I'm sorry it's not better.
2: <laughs> well, I'm curious. So you said you watched this several times. So what, what about it made you kind of go back? Because
1: I was going to be on the Mashley at the movie <laughs> podcast.
2: <laughs> You're a better man than we are. We, we watched it I once mean, and that I, was enough.
1: You know... Uh, I don't consider myself a film historian, but I I do consider myself an authority and people listen to what I say, which I appreciate. Um, So, you know, I, whether it's on my blog or Twitter or, you know, the various outlets that I've written for, I feel like I want to give people an accurate representation of the film beyond a sort of just kind of, you know, I don't know, surface approach. Um, do I think that 99% of the living world would find this to be a boring slog? Yes, I do. (laughs) But there's also that 1%, you know, that makes up the vast majority of my followership that I think will find things to enjoy in this movie. Um, So look, if you've seen every one of your Christmas favorites and you have time on your hands and nothing to do, watch Christmas Eve. I mean, no, that's not a, you know, ringing endorsement, but it's something.
0: Well, you know, I think we've mentioned it's a, it's a fascinating failure, like you said. And, and it is kind of fascinating just to kind of observe its strangeness, um,
1: And you can even see what they're, you know, it's like there is no doubt in my mind that they were trying to, you know, that they were trying to uh, pay homage or rip off, if you prefer, Capra. (laughs) You know, when she digs into this big trash can in her living room and starts throwing birdseed around, you know, and has trains bringing sugar at her table, I was like, okay, he's trying to be quirky. They're trying to be quirky. (laughs) You know, but the thing about Capra is that, you know, for every quirk, there was twice as much heart. And Mm -hmm. that's just missing from this.
0: Yeah. And and like you said, I did enjoy some of the actors. Um, I'm a huge uh, Joan fan, And when I saw her in the credits, I I perked up. And every time she was on screen, I perked up. Uh, Sadly, she's underused and there's just not
2: much for her to do. I'm glad you mentioned dan harding as playing a not convincing older woman because that bugged me throughout the whole every time she showed (laughs) up it bugged me and you know that put me in mind of jeanette nolan who's an actress uh who in my opinion almost seemed to make a living playing women decades older than what she actually was every almost every time and granted i have not seen Jeanette Nolan's full filmography, but every time I come across a movie that she's in, it's like, oh, it's Jeanette, like it's 35-year-old Jeanette Nolan playing a 65 or 70-year-old woman? (laughs) Until, of course, she's in the 1980s movie, Cloak and Dagger, where she is an old woman uh, at that point. So, um, but yeah, I mean, there's, there's, that was a thing and I don't know why. Maybe younger persons are easier to insure or something. I, I, I don't know.
0: I also wanted to say, I don't think this movie and correct me if I'm wrong but I don't think it's very Christmassy like if you're you're coming into this hoping for like a Christmassy vibe I don't think until it gets to Christmas Eve which is the end of the film I don't think it's very Christmassy even
2: no there's there's yeah when it's Christmas Eve yeah there's a tree up and (laughs) that's about it
1: well, it's it's a Christmas movie because they play jingle bells in the opening credits.
2: Gotcha, gotcha. <laughs> okay, yes, those opening credits. Those were nice, weren't they? Those are almost like <laughs> Christmas in Connecticut opening credits, you know. And it's like the little like still, still paintings of like the you know simplistic paintings of people in a sleigh and and, everything.
1: and it, in, interestingly, apparently, um, this film, you know, was whatever sold into syndication for years and years and chopped up, and those credits had to be recreated for the version that we watched. Um, There was a version that came out from Olive Films, which is a great label that sadly no longer exists. Um, Version that came out, I think, in like the mid 2010s on DVD and Blu-ray. And I think that they recreated those titles from, I don't know, some additional source. So, you know, the print that the transfer that's circulating right now is not great, but a fair amount of work of like restoration work has gone into it, which
2: is good to know. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I want to be clear like, I, I, this is not, in my opinion, a bad movie. It's just, it's almost worse than a bad movie. It's just <laughs> kind of dull. But I do appreciate, see, Will, like, is good about this. I mean, if you are a fan, particularly like of, of films of this era or actors from this era, I mean, it's, it's, there are things in it that, you know, are good for a watch.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: Um, and I think sometimes it's, it's actually good to watch a movie that has good intentions but doesn't live up to them because that's also, I mean, again, this is maybe only fun to do if you're someone who really is into movies, but it's just interesting to see where, um, where when, movies, when movies don't work. Because then you get a greater appreciation about when they do. Mm
1: -hmm. Yeah, Yeah, I think you learn more from the failures than you do from the successes. Um, You know, particularly if you are, you know, whatever, a filmmaker or a writer, you you watch like a a perfect piece of work and, and you can't sort of like get your head around how to make something that good. But when you see something bad, you're like, oh, I see how I could have fixed this, you know, or how Mm -hmm. this could have been done differently, which is, you know, both fun and educational.
2: Mm -hmm. Sure. And I don't want to go too far afield here, but one thing that crossed my mind when watching this, I think primarily because we watched this back to back with the other movie we talked with you earlier about, Will, um, Bachelor Mother. Um, That was from 39. This was from 47. I mean... To me, there's a stark contrast between just watching this, and again, I am probably reading way too much into it. But pre-war America and then post-war America. I mean, screwball comedies. Because you know, we talked when we talked about Bachelor Mother that, that was a, an aspect of it about, as a screwball comedy. I don't think they really made screwball comedies post World War II. I mean, not I'm saying they never made comedies, but they just weren't. They didn't quite have the same bounce. And energy for No, a while. I mean,
1: the, the, you are correct. The, the traditional screwball comedy era w- was over by, I mean, before, really w- when we entered the war, but finally said and done, you know, by the end of the war, unless you want to consider like, you know, homages like whatever, what's up doc or, you know, mm-hmm. from the seventies, but, but you are totally correct. And, and was there a difference between pre-war and post-war film, films? hundred percent. I mean, the film noir as a genre, you know, is a, is a post-war phenomenon. So you are totally correct that there's a big difference between, like, a 39 and a 47 movie.
2: Yeah. Yeah. Well, that's Christmas Eve. Um, Will, what <laughs> would you give this out of 10?
1: Oh, I feel like... like I don't want to hurt the movie's feelings, um, <laughs> yeah. you know, it's okay. I Objectively, I will give it because Randolph Scott is handsome and Joan Blondell is funny and hot. And, you know, the, the train thing is cute. Um, I'm going to give it a three.
0: Okay. <laughs> Ashley. For those same reasons, I give it a 4.5.
2: Gosh, I'm coming in high here. I give it a five and a half. Wow. Holy
1: mackerel. I, <laughs> I can't believe you guys made me go first. I gave it a three. I feel
2: yeah. terrible now. Well, I mean, you know, so here's the thing. We do a, a, a zero to 10 scale. And so me, like a five, that that range, that's middle of the road. It's not really good. It's not really bad. So it's middling. And to me, that's what this movie is. It's it's a middling, a very middling movie. Um <laughs> So I really want to give it a five, but the point 0.5 is just because it's like, well, I don't want to hurt his feelings. <laughs> so our score is a 4.3. I uh, would
1: like to apologize to everyone involved <laughs> for what I've said about this
2: movie,
1: <laughs> even though it really, really is not good. <laughs> <laughs>
2: yeah. So that is uh, Christmas Eve and it on Christmas Eve. And stay tuned tomorrow for our 12 Days of Christmas finale. Uh, thank you, Will, for joining us.
1: Thank you. And everybody, make sure to join me for a, a cup of
2: punch. <laughs> yes. and, uh, and Perry Como, right? you listen listening to the Perry Como. Yeah, <laughs> my
1: Perry Como records. And I'll even, if you come to my apartment, I'll put on my old age makeup.
2: <laughs> you walk around with you, a cane. Will you have a smoking jacket?
1: <laughs> Gosh, if things go according to plan, I will, yeah. <laughs>
2: All right. Thanks, Will. Thank you all for listening. Thank you. Merry
1: Christmas, everybody.